Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Today we're jumping into this series called The Passion, and we are examining the seven days leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we are going to begin on the first day of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. We're going to begin on Sunday. This would be known as Palm Sunday. Normally, that actually fits on the Sunday before, but we're going to do it a couple weeks early. This is the famous Sunday where all the kids get little palm branches and whip each other with them. That's this Sunday. What's so amazing about these seven days is that we know so much about the final days and hours of Jesus's life. In fact, half of the book of John is dedicated just to the last seven days of Jesus Christ. And the the moment we're going to examine today is actually in all four Gospels showing this moment from four different perspectives. And I compiled all of the different notes from the different authors in, uh, in the Gospels, and I put them into one narrative. And I'll release that online for you guys later today so you can read it chronologically exactly what happened through the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is the day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And so we're going to read about that, and we're going to let God bring us into that moment and see what he has to say to us in that moment. I want to start with the verse in 1 Corinthians that we're using for really this whole Easter season of celebration of life. It says Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He's talking about the concept of resurrection, and because of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, he says, Now, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Even when it wins, it loses, because the grave is just, is just a moment in between life to more life in the life of a Christian. So now, therefore, it is only a bridge to a better place. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, how many are thankful that you don't have to win the victory on your own, but Jesus Christ gives you what he rightfully won. This is the beginning of this Passion Week. It begins on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is coming over the ridge, riding on a donkey, and the Bible says as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice, and they began to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Not only did they hear the good works of Jesus and hear the good words, they saw God do mighty works. And I want to tell you today that God still does mighty works. He still does the impossible. He still heals. He still changes. He still justifies. He still brings liberty. And this is why we sing and we shout and we praise. It's not that everything's perfect, but that we know that God is perfecting. It's not that everything is right, but we know that God is righteous. It's not that everything in our life is going exactly according to plan, but we know he has a greater plan. And so we sing and we shout and we celebrate because he is good and we've seen his goodness in our lives. Can you say amen, church? They praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying this, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's the key word today. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, him being Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered saying, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and he saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. I wish that you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And here Jesus begins to see into the future and prophesies it, saying, for the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and they'll surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the hour or the person of your visitation. Jerusalem was about to miss its moment, but I pray today you do not miss your moment. This is your hour of visitation. Whether you're in the room or on the stream, I believe the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, wants to visit you personally. He wants to fill your life and fill this room. He wants you to feel his presence tangibly. We're not just here to morally philosophize. We're not just here to hear a good word. We're not just here because someone, our husband or our wife, forced us to be here. We are here because God has a divine plan for our life and his presence will surround us and his joy will come on us and in us and his healing will come through us. I believe that right now the presence of God will fill this place if his people ask. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. This is his final trip as a man on planet earth and he's going to the famous city, the city of God, because it's Passover season. And at this time, everyone in Israel would go to Jerusalem for Passover. And really, throughout the entire world, they would come to Passover. So what you got to understand, though, is this city is very small. In fact, it only had about 40,000 residents at a time. But in Passover, it would swell to over 2 million people within the city and around it. So as you can guess, the atmosphere was tense. It was uncertain. At this point, they were under Roman occupation, and the Romans were pretty brutal rulers, and they hated the Roman government. So every few years or so during the Passover season when everyone's together, there would be skirmishes and uprisings and revolutionaries. So the Roman government is nervous what's about to happen, and so they're trying to lock down the city so it doesn't move into distress. And the disciples are nervous about Jesus' decision to go to Jerusalem because they know that the last time he went to Jerusalem, he almost was killed. And they knew that if he goes back to Judea, even the region of Jerusalem, that the Pharisees are going to kill him. The religious leaders of law in that place are going to kill Jesus. Even the disciples knew this is about to happen. But Jesus kept telling them, I have to die on the road, over and over, I have to go and I have to die. But the disciples, they, they couldn't understand it because death was finality to them. So they thought, you can't die, you have to be our revolutionary. You have to be our Messiah. You have to lead us into victory. But Jesus kept saying, the way I'm gonna gain victory is not the way you think I'm gonna gain victory. It's amazing how many times we miss what God is going to do and wants to do 
because of our preconceived notion of how God works. But God is the creative being, the foremost creative force on the planet. You are not going to be able to figure out God in your life. You're not going to be able to figure out how he works. This is where faith and trust comes in. I don't fully get all this, and I don't fully understand everything, but I trust in you over what I understand or even what I want. And so here the disciples are trying to dissuade God from going to the temple because they know that only death awaits that way. And the Pharisees had been planning Jesus's demise really for many years, but especially the moment he raised Lazarus from the dead, because many of them didn't even believe in resurrection. They certainly didn't believe that he was the one that was worthy of resurrecting people. So the minute Jesus revealed his nature as the resurrector, they said, this guy's got to go. Because the religious people wanted to maintain the status quo, what was, and here Jesus threatened to tear that all down. And so all of these different uh, people and different ideologies and, and different expectations are about to culminate in this city of Jerusalem. The city meaning peace. And yet it's only ever known war. For Thousands of years, it's changed hands. Empire after empire has come and destroyed the city, and it's been rebuilt 67 times. The city of Jerusalem has changed hands from one authority to another. The city of peace was really a restless city. And here, Jesus is walking in, but you know who he is? He's the Prince of Peace. Isaiah says he is wonderful counselor, everlasting father, and he gives them the title, the Prince of Peace. Today, I want to talk to you about how Jesus' purpose on planet Earth was always to bring peace to his people. The reason he arrived was to bring peace to a peaceless people. See, the problem is we don't even know what things bring peace that's our core problem as humanity. We might know things that bring rest or relaxation, but we have a hard time pursuing the things that even bring peace to our hearts and our minds and our soul and certainly our home. We seemingly are incapable of being at peace unless someone else can impart it to us. And without Jesus, even if we're at peace at home. We certainly can't be at peace with God in eternity. There had to be a mediator. There had to be a bridge. There had to be someone who could come and impart peace to a city that's only known war, to a people that's only known revolution. And it's not just them, it's us. We're, we're, we're filled with anxieties and nervousness and anger and, and, and fighting. And, and, and we're, we're filled with selfishness, which will always cause disruption with others. When everyone's looking out for themselves, of course there can't be peace in a community. And so we need someone to bring this thing to us. And here comes Jesus. In the midst of the disciples' fear. And I don't know how you came to church today, but maybe you came in the midst of a fearful situation. It really does seem as if the spirit of fear is trying to come, not just on our nation, but really on the whole world right now. There seems to be a shaking and an anxiety, but I do believe when the Prince of Peace comes, he casts out all fear. <laughs> Hear me, Jesus brings peace because he is peace. He brings resurrection because he is resurrection. God doesn't just love, God is love. See, this is important. 
that he's not just a good teacher with good ideas. He's God that imparts things into us, on us, around us that we could not get without him. Here comes the peacemaker. And he decides to come over the Mount of Olives, riding, the Bible says, on a donkey. Mount of Olives is a really important place in in Scripture. In fact, so many amazing things all throughout the Old and New Testament happen on this holy mountain. It's a mountain that's right outside of Jerusalem, and it overlooks all of the city of Jerusalem. And here is the mountain of kings. It was filled with olive trees, and from those olive trees, they would get anointing. You know, has your grandmother ever tried to put some olive oil on you and anoint you? No, just my grandmother. You know, you're doing bad, flick some anointing at you. Well, it comes from the tradition of the Old Testament where kings, when they were going to be appointed to the position, they were also anointed with oil. And the oil that they got was from the Mount of Olives because it was filled with olive trees. Listen, here comes the king. Here comes the king. And just like the kings of old, he's going to ride through the anointing. You've got to understand all of this is about Jesus proclaiming, I am the king. I am the conqueror. And here's why this matters. Because I have the authority to release something. Only the king has the authority to give and to take away. And so Jesus is setting this whole scene up so that we all understand and everyone there understood he's not just a good guy. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And when he rides in, he's bringing something with him. He's going to bring peace. So he rides into the anointing and he, and, and he comes to the place where later on, the Mount of Olives, he was going to ascend into heaven. And, and the prophet Zechariah says, and it's in that same place that when the Messiah returns, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is a place where everything is going to happen, both, both has happened and in the future. This is the mountain that the psalmist says, I look to the mountains. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Do you need help today? Do you need help in your mind? Do you need help raising your children? Do you need help in your relationships The enemy wants to keep you looking low and at yourself as long as he can keep you in the here and the now. And I just got to make it through today. And I just got to go hour by hour. And if I could just make it through the next five minutes. But the psalmist says, look up. Come on, begin to look up. Look on the mountain. Here he comes. He's our helper. He's our guidance. He's our deliverer. He's our king. And that's where our helps come from. My help comes from the Lord. The maker of heaven and earth, and yet he comes in humility. The word became flesh, and more than that, he rides in on a donkey. Donkey? I thought God would come in on a stallion, but he chooses the beast of burden. He chooses, even more than that, the the foal of a donkey, just just a a young donkey that's never been ridden before, and it's not even his own. He borrows it from someone else showing that you and I will have a part in ushering the presence of God in. He comes to someone and says, I need to use that donkey. The master has need of it. And hear me, one day God will come to you and say, can I use you? Can I use your life? For the master has need of it. And you say, well, this is all I have, and that's all I need. Here comes the king. The Bible says humble. Prophet Zechariah says lowly and riding 
on a donkey. He comes in unbelievable humility because this is his nature. Though he's king, he chooses to come without an army. He's about to conquer Jerusalem, not through war, but through peace. He's about to show up not riding a war horse, but riding a donkey. And his army is not one that he had to raise or force, but it is the crowd that willingly gathers around him. And he is the God, not one that causes taxation, but people willingly take off their cloaks and they throw it before the king. Napoleon Bonaparte said this, he said, Caesar and Charlemagne and Augustine and myself, we founded great empires, but what did we found them upon but upon force? He said, but Jesus, he founded his empire upon love. And at this moment, millions of men would willingly die for him. When Jesus came, he didn't come in war. He came to make peace with people that desperately needed peace. He comes to you. He comes for us. He comes in a victorious procession. Last week, I talked about how he shows up as a conqueror. Think about it. He comes on the back of this donkey, and there's a whole procession, and they're waving the palm branches, which is what you would do for a conquering ruler. Isn't it interesting that he comes in a victory procession before the crucifixion and before the resurrection? Because just when he showed up, he already won. You gotta understand the nature of God. He didn't come unsure. He didn't come quietly. He didn't come nervously. He didn't come saying, I hope this works out. He showed up and said, celebrate now, because I've already won. Listen, I don't know what you're going through, but I know the God that you serve. Celebrate now because you've already won. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if it will be in this life or in the next. But celebrate now because you are a conqueror because he is the conquering king. He shows up in a victory parade before he's yet even resurrected to life because that is who he is, king of kings and lord of lords. And of course, there's, there's a huge reaction. Everyone in the city knows Jesus is coming. He just raised his friend from the grave. Word has traveled fast, and the crowd is swelling all around him, and we see three different reactions to the procession of peace as Jesus comes towards Jerusalem. We see three different reactions to the arrival of Jesus. The first is the crowd, and the crowd begins to call for deliverance. You know the phrase they use is Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us now, Lord. I wonder if you see yourself in this crowd. I wonder if you're there even right now and you have a desperate need for salvation. Maybe you've done things your own way. Maybe you've gone your own route. Maybe you've tried to make yourself better. You've tried the self-help, you've tried crystals, you've tried education, you've tried eating well, you've tried getting in the right relationship and yet you cannot Heal yourself. You can't find salvation for yourself. You know something's missing. Think about it. These people had the temple of God. They had the sacrifices that were happening. This was the Passover time where they would, they would sacrifice a perfect, spotless, innocent lamb. And that blood of that lamb would be imputed to them. In other words, that your sins would, would be taken by this lamb. And it, the lamb would get death, but you would get life. They had all these things in place. They had the lamb, they had the temple, they had rules, they had laws, they had prophets, they had priests, and yet they knew we're missing something. You can live a good life. 
and know I'm still missing something. You say, well, I sacrifice all. You know what I've given up? But see, it's not sacrifice that saves you. It's not laws that save you. It's not good works that save you. Even the priests could not be saved. When Jesus came over the ridge, there was just something in the crowd that said, that's the one that has deliverance. Listen, I don't know what you need today. I don't know what type of deliverance you need today, but if you are here and you need deliverance, I'm telling you, the king is on his way. He's riding directly towards you. He is a deliverer. He is just. He is filled with love. He does not come to bring destruction. He comes to bring life. That's who Jesus is. So if you're in the crowd today and you're shouting, save us now, you are in the right crowd. You are in the right crowd and you are shouting to the right God. The very reason he came was to bring salvation. And, and, and might I say this? Even though this crowd was later going to be the same exact people that shouted, crucify him, God said, I'll still answer your first cry. Even if you're going to reject me, I'm still going to answer your first cry. Even if you're going to push me away, I'm still going to answer your first cry. I'm going to come and bring deliverance. Even when we're not faithful, he's faithful. Even when we slip up, he stays firm. Even when we draw back, he draws close. I want you to know who God is. It doesn't matter who you are. You say, well, I'm imperfect. Well, I'm a sinner. Well, I'm messed up. We got that. But let me tell you about God. He is the deliverer that you do not deserve. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is love all the way through. Knowing you will reject him, he still chooses to rescue you. And rescue you again and again and again. Because I know you need to be saved every day. You think, well, I prayed a prayer once. You better pray that prayer again and again and again. Because, yes, I need salvation. But more than that, I need deliverance. Save us now, Lord. Save us from ourselves. Are you in the crowd right now? Are you shouting towards Jesus right now? Because the Prince of Peace is on his way. The second reaction to Jesus we see is his disciples. And they begin to shout even louder. And they begin to testify about his nature. The crowd says, save us. But the disciples, they begin to say, just so you know, behold the king. And they begin to say, he brings peace in the highest. He doesn't just bring peace to heaven. The peace descends now on earth. Peace in the highest and glory. The disciples testify to his nature. Hear me, if you're a Jesus follower, this is your primary purpose, is to testify about the works that you have seen and heard about Jesus Christ. And I might even add to this, the darker the world gets, the brighter your light should shine. That we are not nervous to testify about who we are and what he's done. I pray there's a spirit of boldness on you. I pray that God gives you the right words to say in the right situation. I pray even if you are nervous to invite that person, even if you are nervous to share what happened, I pray in that moment there's a supernatural boldness that fills you and you begin to take it up another level saying he's the king. Let me tell you what he's done. Let me show you who he is. I want you to know what your purpose on planet Earth, what's your reaction? Do you need salvation? If you've received it, now you begin to testify about what you have received. But there's a third reaction. And here, the religious people, they get, they get to have their own say in the discussion. And they get frustrated about what's happening. There's a celebration, there's shouts, and there's pomp and ceremony. And that's always when the religious spirit pipes up. It's when everyone's happy. It's when everyone's joy-filled. That's when the religious spirit says, teacher, speaking to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They don't, they don't just want the disciples to stop worshiping. 
They want them to be condemned. Tell them to stop it. Tell them that they're wrong. Rebuke your disciples. Why? Because they're worshiping Jesus as the king. And so the religious leaders are saying, how dare you say you're the king? How dare you say you're the son of David? How dare you say the Messiah? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Listen, this is the voice of dead religion. That it, it wants to rise up and get on you. Listen, religion always wants to silence your worship. And it always wants you to isolate yourself from the people of worship. That voice that comes in and say, you don't deserve to be at church. I want you to know that's not the Holy Spirit. That's a dead spirit of dead religion. When you feel condemned, when you begin to allow that voice to come on you, I want you to know that's not the spirit of celebration. That's the spirit of the Pharisees that tries to say, teacher, silence the worship. The enemy hates when you worship God. He hates when you worship because your worship is so powerful. I would challenge you, praise even through your predicaments. Praise all the way through. I don't know what he's going to do, but I know who he is, so I'm gonna shout, and when there comes things against me, that's an indication. Let me let you in on a little secret. When it gets difficult to praise, that's because you're breaking through. When it gets difficult to follow God, that's because you're starting to make a difference. It's when it starts to be difficult, that's when the enemy is coming against you, and the enemy never ever comes against someone who isn't a threat. When you begin to push into the things of God, that's when it gets difficult. Why? Because dead religion says, stop your worship. Just maintain the status quo. Look, we're fine here. We're fine here. We got, we got sheep. We got the temple. We got our own religion. We're in authority. Religion, the dead religious spirit, it, loves to be, it always loves to be in charge. It always loves to have a say. And it really hates when church gets joy-filled. Oh, man, it hates that so much. Like during revivals or after prayer, you know how you feel drunk after a great prayer session? Prayer, right? Prayer session. You just feel like, ah, I love everybody. That's when the religious spirit tries to make that thing grow cold. Wants you to grow cold to the things of God. Cold towards the people of God. Cold towards church. You don't have to have every, an opinion on every single song. You don't have to have an opinion on every single background, series, slide, sermon. You don't have to have an opinion on every single thing you do right and wrong. Can I say that? Because sometimes the spirit of religion tries to come on you and say, how dare you? And you need to say, how dare me? How dare you? You've got no authority over my life. How dare you keep speaking condemnation over the king's kid? Let me let, me let you know on a, a really cool aspect of this. They have to go to Jesus to tell his disciples to be quiet. They don't have the authority. When Jesus shows up, that dead cold, religious, familiarity voice doesn't have authority anymore over you. So they have to say, God, will you tell your people to be quiet? It's like the kid in class, you know, that's always tattling. It's like the kid that didn't, that finished their homework and said like, oh, your teacher, you forgot to, you forgot to gather our homework. And the rest of us are like, are you kidding me? That's the religious spirit. It's that guy. You know, ugh, ugh. Yeah, he probably is successful later on in life. But you know what? The religious spirit has to say, like, Jesus, will you, tell, will you tell your disciples to please be quiet? Because, hear me, the dead, dying, familiar, cold spirit does not have authority over you when you're in the procession of Jesus. When you're around the proximity of the king. 
You now come under his authority and his anointing. Listen, I no longer have to come under that, that, that junk. I now get to come under the words of Christ, which is fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. That's the authority I now get to come under. They go to Jesus. Will you tell them to be quiet? And Jesus says, absolutely not. He said, in fact, if they didn't worship me, the rocks would cry out. But see, here's the interesting thing on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives on the way down, it's actually one of the oldest and largest cemeteries in the world. 3,000-year-old cemetery. And there's stone after stone of cemeteries on the left and on the right, 150,000 graves all around. So what Jesus was saying is if they do not worship me, the living disciples, I will raise the dead from their graves the very stones will begin to shout out in worship. Jesus wasn't just saying, I'll make nature sing. He's saying something way more than that. He's saying, I've got all the power and I've got all the authority. He was letting them in on a secret. I've got resurrection power. Here's the little threat. If you guys don't stop complaining, I will raise the dead right here and right now and I will have them begin to worship me. Why? Because he's worthy. Because he's worthy. Because he's got the authority. He brings life to people. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, let the living worship me. And if they don't, I'll bring the dead to life and they'll worship me. And I'm so thankful that he has that power because when we die, he brings us to life so that what? We can continue to worship him. Come on, we're singing now, but we'll be singing for eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And so... In the middle, middle of this celebratory atmosphere, it's pretty amazing what begins to happen, is that as people are shouting and, and cheering and, and singing, all of a the sudden, there's a shift. The Bible says about halfway down the Mount of Olives, Jesus sees Jerusalem in the distance. And he's overlooking the whole city. And all of a sudden, it's almost as if there's a focusing effect. Everyone else kind of blurs into the background. Everything else begins to fade. There's celebration still happening, but now Jesus is about to have a, a private moment. And the Bible says that Jesus wept. This is one of the most human moments of Jesus. Here he is weeping over a city. You know what that shows me? That Jesus loves cities. He loves Jerusalem. But more than Jerusalem, he loves our cities. He loves Providence. He loves Boston. He loves our nation. He loves people. And he loves cities. And when he sees the city, there's something in God that says, that's who I'm here for. Those people. And what's so interesting, and those are the people in that city that are about to reject him, and he knows that, yet he still loves them so much, he begins to be brought to tears. You have this human moment. Picture it. As everyone around him is cheering and shouting and calling him king and welcoming him, here's Jesus weeping, silently crying over people because he knows what's about to happen. And he says this profound thing. He says, if only you had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
Here's the Prince of Peace, and he's coming to deliver peace. And yet, he's bringing peace to a peaceless people. They don't really want peace. And more than that, they don't even know the elements of peace. They don't know what it looks like. And they're not the only ones with this problem. You know, we have this problem. The reality is, as much as you say you want peace, it's very difficult to find. And it's difficult to pursue. And I don't think we can find it on our own. It says, if only you knew the things that make for peace. They didn't know. They thought it was religion and law. They thought it was sacrifices, but those weren't the things that brought peace into their home and peace with God. It was Jesus who was always meant to be the Prince of Peace. And when he came in, the whole city missed it. They saw him, and yet they didn't understand him. I wonder how many times we miss Jesus, the peace bringer, as we're just looking for peace in the wrong places, in empty places. I mean, so many people will look for peace in relationships. But I want you to know, if they're not Jesus, they can't bring inner peace. You have to be careful. I see so many people, they feel broken on the inside, so they think, you know what, I'll just marry someone. And when we come together, when we're finally married, then I'll, I'll feel at peace. Until they marry that person. And, and many times, they go from person to person to person because they're trying to find peace in a person. But unless that person is Jesus, they'll always leave you empty. It's amazing how many times in searching, we just allow a relationship with kind of anybody because we think, this guy, you know, he likes me. And if you're not careful, you'll, you'll open your home to someone that could not possibly bring peace to it. And if they don't know Jesus, then they're probably bringing the opposite of peace into your home. A lot of young people, they really want peace. They've got anxiety in their mind, chaos in their lives. And it just seems that the more stuff we have, the more noise we have. And so we, we have a whole generation that's searching for inner peace, and they can't find it. So they settle for ingesting substances that will at least cause a temporary distance from reality. That if I can't feel at least I don't feel bad. At least I don't feel anxiety. But that's not peace. We, we look at vacation and that moment saying like that, when I finally get there, then I'll feel peace. But you, you could live in the Bahamas and not have peace. See, peace can't come from the outside. And it certainly can't come from stuff, or situations or people. We think money will bring peace. If I finally had enough money, I would have no more cares. I'd have no more worries. But I would lift up the richest people in the world seem to have the most chaotic lives. And they're filling counselors' offices and, and they're going from divorce after divorce and obviously seems like, seems like they have less peace than us. You couldn't give me billions of dollars to take on these billionaires' lives because it's so filled with angst. So where can we get peace? 
Here Jesus comes over the ridge and he's looking at a people and he says, you guys, you don't even know the things that bring peace. You're looking, but you miss it. And I would propose to you today that it's proximity to Jesus and that alone that brings peace in the mind, in the soul, in the home, and in eternity. It's proximity to Jesus. Because he is the peace, he's the peace bringer. He walks in with it. It's why he comes with humility. It's why he comes lowly and humble and riding on a donkey saying, I know it looks foolish, but I've got exactly what you need. I don't want to search anymore in stuff. I want to come to Jesus more often. You know, I want to get closer to him because the one that made my soul will give rest to my soul. He says, are you... Are you worried? Are you heavy laden? Are you bent over by the weight of life? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He's the peacemaker. He's the peace bringer. And he brings it not just to Jerusalem. He brings it to every city and every people, even the ones that are going to reject him. Think about it. He's weeping over people that he knows are going to shout crucify him. And in that moment, he actually sees the destruction of Jerusalem. He sees the siege of Jerusalem, which will happen 40 years later. The siege of Jerusalem was so devastating. If you're ever to read about it, it's one of the worst battles that mankind has ever faced. And it was so horrific that Rome went in with total war. They absolutely decimated. They killed every person within Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. They tore down houses. The historian Josephus said after the battle, the destruction was so full over Jerusalem, it looked like no one had ever lived there before. That's how terrible the destruction was. And Jesus sees this destruction. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't, do see, he doesn't say, see, that's because you rejected me. You get what you deserve. You wanted war, you got war. You didn't want peace, that's what it looks like. He didn't do that. He sees their destruction and he begins to weep because his plan was never for our destruction. His plan was always for our restoration. He weeps over those that will reject him. He weeps over those that miss it. He weeps for those that will hate him. He weeps over you and over me, and he weeps over our nation and over our children and over our kids. I wonder, I wonder how many times we miss God because he doesn't show up the way we thought he would. They were expecting a revolutionary that was going to start a physical war, but he says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm going to make my kingdom in the hearts of men and women. Listen, hear me. Don't miss Jesus simply because he doesn't come in the way you thought he should come, at the time you think he should come, in the manner in which he should come. Jerusalem wasn't looking for someone coming in lowly and riding on a donkey. They were looking for someone coming in with a war horse and the angels of heaven's armies. But Jesus says, I'm not going to come your way. I'm going to come my way. And you can choose whether you're all right with that. Hear me. Jesus, he will always come towards you, but it will be in a way that maybe you think is a little foolish. Maybe is a way you think doesn't totally make sense. He might not come in your timing. He might not come in the presentation you hope for, but can you say foolishness aside, however it looks aside, I want you, Jesus, over anything else in my life. I want you and you alone. Jesus says these people, they miss their hour of visitation. I pray that you don't miss your moment. And right now, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is walking towards you. He's coming your way. 
I pray you don't miss this moment right here and now. He wants to bring peace for your world. Peace for your mind. He's the conqueror that doesn't conquer through war. He conquers through peace for your eternity. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.